Well, take your Bibles and turn into the New Testament, to that little book of Titus, which follows First and Second Timothy. And let's get back to where we were before. We're still in chapter one. Chapter one, Titus one, verses nine, five through nine. And let's ask the Lord's blessing at this time this morning. Father, it's a good season of the year. We've been singing some of these Christmas carols that really express some very profound truths about yourself. These carols that many times are being broadcast over secular radio stations. And uh, I pray that these words in this time of the year will be used of you to speak to hearts about the greatness of the salvation and the Savior who brought it. And that you be revealing yourself to us and making us more and more useful as instruments through which you can impact the world to your glory. Pray as we look at some of these things here in this little book of Titus this morning, that your hand would move in our hearts and lives and that you would have free reign with each one of us and that you would accomplish the things that need to be done that you want to do in us. Pray for myself that you would help my my knowledge and uh, my life to confirm and to be used of you to glorify your name. I was thinking about that this morning, my quiet time, that and asking you that more than anything else, I would like for you to make me love you with all my heart, that you would be number one in my life, number one in my performance, number one in my passions, my goals. That's a high goal, but it's important. I want to be a, what I would call a Luke 14 disciple. And so I pray that you would help me to become more and more conformed to your image. Thank you for this time and for the privilege we have to look here in these few verses in Titus. Pray your blessing upon it to our hearts and lives this morning. And I ask it in my Savior's name of thanksgiving. Amen. Paul talks about renewing your mind with the truths of Scripture, and that's what, what we do is we open God's Word, and we study it, and it kind of renews our hearts and our minds and kind of refreshes us. In Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9, I'm going to read the verses that we've been studying. These are verses that relate to what I call ministerial qualifications, and that's because Paul is writing to Titus here in this uh, verse 5 of chapter 1. He says, for this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order or make straight the things that remain, so that Paul and Titus have been working in that island of Crete, ministering there in the churches, and there is things still to be done, and Paul is having to leave, going up to Macedonia, and so he's leaving Titus behind, and he's instructing him that he's going to appoint elders in every city, even as I have directed or instructed you, and then he begins to list some qualifications for Titus to look for when you're appointing elders. What kind of qualifications are you 
you're wanting to see reflected in the lives of those people that you appoint as elders. Those are not mainly educational or academic qualifications. They are more of a moral nature. He says, namely, if a man is above reproach, the husband of one wife having children who believe not a curse, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. These are some of the beginning things he's talking about there. For the overseer, who is a, another term that would be using for leader or elder, the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that you would be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Some of the things he begins to list there, he says, if a man back up in verse six is above reproach, that means his life doesn't give the devil or the enemy a handle with which to accuse the man that his life is a, is a life worthy of emulation and that his message is backed up by his life. And that's, that's very, very important. Um, that's not only true in the area of ministry for pastors, but it's true and also with families. If we want our kids to be faithful to the Lord, they need to see the example of the faithfulness of mom and dad to the Lord. We cannot expect our children to walk close to the Lord while we as parents are not. I don't know what you do at your homes, and I know some of you do, but others may not, that uh, you send your children off to, to Sunday school or church hoping that they will absorb something while you stay home. They're going to interpret that when they get older to mean that now that I'm older, I don't have to go to church. I can stay home like mom and dad. And that, that going to church and studying the Bible is primarily for children. Your example speaks louder than your sermon, so to speak. And so that's what he's saying here. He says to be a husband of one wife or one woman man, that means that they should be committed to the woman that you're married to. Having children who believe, not just talking about children that are saved, because not all, uh, we, we can't guarantee our children are going to always be saved, but it means that they're not in conflict with our passions and our hearts and that they are not uh, fighting the very foundations which we have established, that they're not in active and open rebellion, that they are under control. Um, um, he goes on to say, for the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward. And steward is a term that has to do with a person in the, in the New Testament that was given in charge of a household. Many times there were stewards that were left in charge of a household. And he uses that idea here that leaders are are kind of overseers of God's family or God's household, God's family here, and that we have that oversight, that responsibility. And that is a serious responsibility because people are are presented as sheep. And uh, Christ, of course, is the good shepherd, but we have under shepherds and we seek to to teach and to educate and to protect and to lead and to guide the flock. And so there is that stewardship and that oversight that takes place in there. He goes on to talk about a number of things about not being self, uh, self-willed, that is not self-exalting, uh, not quick-tempered, that is not having a, a disposition that is always angry or whatever, not addicted to wine, not someone that sits long at the wine or the table of wine for the buzz, so to speak, uh, not 
pugnacious that is not physically or verbally abusive, um, not fond of sordid game, not working into the ministry or in the ministry primarily for financial profit or just trying to make money, uh, loving what is good, sensible, devout, self-control. These are some of the things that we're going to look at this morning as we get back into the text. We're going to slow down a little bit. Um, and, and this is just really, really important. I'm moving sort of slowly through these because these are important issues. They do step on our toes, and uh, we are aware of weaknesses in our lives, at least I am in my life. And so uh, we started, we were looking last time uh, at verse 8, talking about being hospitable, loving what is good. Hospitable means not just uh, opening your home up, but loving people and caring for people. And uh, I've used the illustration because I work with people a lot that that's really important. Not everybody is necessarily um, attractive or lovable when you first look at them. In fact, there are some people that I would, would not sit down next to in a crowded room if I had the choice to sit somewhere else. And it's those people that I really try to say, Lord, I know you know those people, and I know you love them, and I know that you would like to for me to talk to them um, because it's really important. You care for them. God cares for them. He cares for them very much. And so we want to be those that are concerned for people, even people that may not be lovable. Now, not everybody is going to respond to that kind of, of pursuit of friendship, but mo mo many people do. And we just want to do that, to be hospitable, to be those who are loving what is good, uh, what is um, proper, what is um, in, in line with what is legally right, what, is, what is, is true, to be sensible, to be in control of your own mind, and uh, um, not being given over to these little fancy uh, way out schemes that take place with being in charge, be somewhat mentally uh, organized in a, in a good, clean, moral way. Let's look at just. That's probably the next one on the list that we haven't talked about. He says um, hospitable, loving what is good, sensible. And then the English word there, the word just, dikaios is the word, and it means uh, that which is right, um, that which conforms to what is right. Um, pertaining to what is right, that which is just, um, it's, it's that which is expected by the one who sets the rules and the regulations that we must live. Um, a person that is just is a person that's careful about the things. Now, I'm, I kept thinking about my friend uh, Bruce Walker when I looked at these things because Bruce is very fastidious about obeying the speed limit, much more so than <laughs> Should I say we are or I am? But um, yeah, yeah. I'm not always quite as careful about that. Um, but that has the idea of being just, of being careful about the laws, the rules, the regulations that are established. Uh, it's that which is expected as duty, um, and and that's 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 important. Dikaios, uh, or the word just, means that one conforms his actions and uh, his actions 
or develop a character that is just, that is predictable. The rules in his life, while they may be rules that, that are external, they are self-imposed. He's in charge of those. And uh, this standard is a very important standard for him. Um, and yet that standard has been also established by God for us, hasn't he? He has established the standard that we need to obey him and to keep his rules and his laws. There is a problem with that, though, and that is that we don't do that. And while we don't obey the speed limits and most of the time, and most of the time we get away with it, God is, is a little bit, uh, quite, in fact, quite a bit more serious about our keeping those laws and that um, there is no man, according to the Bible, that can fully satisfy, meet, comply with, and obey the laws of God. Romans 3.10, just in Romans, that whole passage in Romans 3 gives a list of areas in which we fall short of God's glory. This is a serious, serious passage because it's an indictment that leaves the whole world guilty before God. But one of the things in that indictment is uh, verse 10 of Romans 3, there is none righteous, not even one. That word righteous is this word, same word that is translated just here. There is none that um, is in that category. And that's a very serious, serious accusation. And that word righteous is used not only of talking about us, but it's used of, of well, Jesus uses it, in, or John uses it in John 17, quoting Jesus in his prayer of the Father, where in the prayer of the Father, he says, um, Father, I desire that those whom you have given me, I'm reading from John 17, 24, I desire that those whom you have given me be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. And then this is what he says, O righteous Father. That word righteous is the same word, righteous Father. Although the world has not known you, yet I have known you. And these, talking about his disciples, have known that you sent me. And I have revealed you or made your name known to them so that I have come and they know that I've come from the Father and I've come to explain you to them and to show you to them and to teach the, the, my disciples about you and that you've sent me and I will make it known so that the love, the concern, the provision which uh, you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So there is this this provision that Christ came, the disciples know that he is from God and he has been teaching them and helping them to understand that the things that he has provided are provided um, from the Father and they are things that are provided in the salvation, in the love that he has provided. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a magnificent marrying together, if you will, of the plan and purpose of God and the response of the disciples and how they are growing in that and how Christ has been teaching them and helping them. That's one reason why 
I think it's necessary that we invest time every day in God's word. We, we talk about that we are Christians, but yet if we are not in the word of God, we're not acting like and living like or growing like Christians. We need to be in God's word every day. And if you're listening to me and you don't spend much time in God's word, I would suggest that you begin to start with the gospel, particularly the gospel of John, and just read some of that and devour it. You don't have to read it fast. You can go through the same chapter every day for a week and then another chapter, another chapter, and devour it uh, because it'll change your life. Because Christ uses his word to speak to our hearts. And so it's really, really important. This, this uh, term just was used, for example, remember when Stephen was being stoned uh, he one of the they began to stone him because he was preaching about the Jews and one of the things he said about the Jews that kind of upset them was he said which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute they killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one that righteous one again is a translation of this word that we are looking at the word just same word in the Greek you you're been you're this righteous one whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. And Peter uses it, and he uses it as the opposite of unrighteous. Listen to this, 1 Peter 3.18, Christ also died for sins once and for all, the just, that is the word that we're using, the just for the unjust. And so here is, here is Christ who is the perfect fulfillment and keeper of God's law, he died for us who don't keep his law. We are unjust. We are unrighteous. And he has died for that. This uh, one who died is just. And we are those who are unjust. We lack justice. We lack imputed righteousness. Righteousness which is granted in the gospel through faith. Uh, lacking the inherent righteousness that is produced also in our lives by the Holy Spirit if we are believers. And so uh, Christ is the righteous one. He died for us who are unrighteous. Here's another thing that's interesting. If you don't mind me getting into this a little bit. In the Old Testament, this word that we are studying here that is translated just is, is uh, translated in the Hebrew, uh, hagios. And uh, that... I think it was Weiss that said the meaning of that is any matter of religious awe, expiation, sacrifice, holy, set apart, sanctified, consecrated, saintly. Important what words mean, isn't it? Uh, it means to be pure, clean, ceremonially, or morally clean. Includes the idea of deserving respect. MacArthur says it can also be, and probably is better fitting to see it as meaning just and equitable. Let me, let me give you a place where that word is translated in the, in the Old Testament. Um, in Psalm 16.10, talking about the, the uh, son of David not undergoing decay, it says, For you will not abandon my soul and shield, nor will you allow your, here it is, Haggai's, holy one to undergo decay. Holy one to undergo decay. If you turn to the book of Acts, where Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost, he quotes that verse, 
and he uses the word that we're looking at, um, translated in our text, just. He says this, because you will not abandon my soul in Hades, nor allow your Holy One. Peter uses the Greek equivalent to that in that text when he translates Hagias in the Old Testament. And so this idea of being just and fulfilling God's law and taking it seriously is found both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And it is a real serious standard. And we can't toy around with it. We can't play games with it. It's a serious thing. What makes it really serious is that we don't do it. And we're going to be accountable for that. And the only way we can escape that accountability is if we turn to the one who provided a covering for our sin. The one who gave his life to pay for our sin, the one who died on the cross so that we might have life. And uh, that that's really, that's really the answer because we will never, once we are violated the law, we stand for the rest of eternity guilty as a violator and there's no hope unless we, in God's infinite mercy and grace, respond to his work in our lives and he gives us the faith to believe and the trust and call out to him for mercy. And so that's really important. And that's that's one of the reasons why I encourage us, encourage those that are listening to be sure that you're spending time in God's word every day. That's a priority. That's more important than eating your breakfast is spending time in God's word and devouring it and letting God's word clean your heart and your mind and direct your heart to, to uh, renew your heart and your mind. That's really, really important. So here's the first word that is used here that we're looking at. Uh, where he says, be hospitable, loving, what is good, sensible, just. We looked at that. The next word in that list um, is the word devout in my translation. I'm on the New American Standard translation. It's the word uh, devout. Uh, Hasios is the, is the Greek word there. It refers to one who is holy. And that's going to sound sort of like what we just looked at, the word just. It's going to sound similar to it. It, it means that we are conforming to God and to his laws. And it, um, it is distinguished from dikios, which is the previous word that we've been looking at, the word just. And um, the, the, uh, the Hebrew word hasad, great, which that means to be gracious or kind, is also the, the word that is translated um, this word is translated. It is used in the note of person who readily accepts the obligations which arise from the covenant of God's people, God's relation, their people's relationship to God. Such a person is known as the loyal or pious one. And uh, that is that is a, a word that is a good word to learn because the Bible talks about being holy, and the Bible talks a lot about being just. In fact, those two terms sometimes are used sort of together. Um, some scholars have tried to distinguish these and say that just has to do with man's relationship to man and devout has, um, has more to do with man's relationship to God. But actually the, the righteousness and the fulfillment of these, this standard comes from God both toward man and, for, and toward God. That we can't, and, and this is a good thing to remember, we can't really genuinely generate real concern and love for a fellow man until the Lord has opened our heart and enabled us to love him. 
What does the Bible say? Jesus gave the greatest commandment. He said, Thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, being. And the second is like unto that love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so this is important. It's generated by God, and we need to have that, that strong commitment, that devotion, uh, both to keeping the laws of man as well as being separated to and dedicated to the things of God and to follow him. The next word there is the word self-control. And um, we'll, this will be the last one we'll look at. Uh, self-control has to do with um, exerting power over your own life. Power that is exercised. Um, it's, it's actually a combination of, there's a prefix in, which has to do with, it, it, the, the prefix, the Greek is en, but it sounds like the word in, and it does have to do with focusing on the inside. But then the second half of that, kratos, has to do with power and dominion and strength. So when you put those two words together, uh, it is a power that is exercised or applied uh, and, and uh, applies to one's mastery on his inside, on himself, being able to control himself, uh, control his mind and his character and things of this nature. That's a, that's a very important aspect of it. It's the thing probably that I struggle with when we talk about things that uh, we want to, to emulate and set the kind of the bar of our lives that we want to reach at, this is one of the ones that, that I struggle with the most, I guess, is to be self-controlled. It's a power that's manifested on the inside to master yourself. Um, let me give you a couple of, of verses and then we'll, we'll close. Uh, Paul includes this word in illustrating the competition that has taken place in athletic competition, and that competition is to illustrate the competitive nature of competing with our sinful nature to be holy. Let me just read a verse that you're familiar with in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 25 through 27. We read, everyone who competes in the games exercises, and here is the word, self-control. Everyone who competes in the games exercises a measure of controlling of himself in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. People, and you know that people who are competing in, in, in athletic competition do it uh, aggressively. I, we just, I was, I'm a big Alabama fan, you know. They do a lot of practice, a lot of self-discipline. Uh, Saban's very strong on that. And uh, it's not just external, but he's very strong on making self-motivated. Uh, and that's true with anything. Anything you're doing, you, you put that self-discipline, that self-motivation into it. And that's what he's using the illustration. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, a wreath that's going to perish and, and dry up. But we exercise self-control and discipline to receive an imperishable wreath or crown. Um, therefore, I run. He's talking about my my walk, my life, my competition. I run in such a way, not without aims, not just I'm just doing something, but I'm having a focus and a purpose and an exercising and a discipline, my mind and my heart and my life. I exercise in such a way, and then he uses the analogy of boxing. I box in such a way, not as beating the air, but I discipline my body. 
I make it my slave. It's interesting. He brings it down to the flesh, the physical aspect. I make my body my slave so that after I have run my mouth or preached to others, that's what we get up here and run our mouth about others. We preach to others. I myself will not be disqualified. Boy, I tell you, how many times you hear somebody say, you know, if that's the guy's a Christian, why is he doing this and that and the other? And we just give a whole list of things that he's supposed to be a Christian or she's supposed to be a Christian, but she's not living like it. You, you understand that? And that's 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 what he's talking about here. We we exercise self-control so that we will not be tossed aside or cast away. That is also a product of the Holy Spirit. You know the Galatians 5. 22 to 23 of the passages that deal with the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Uh, that is the, the Holy Spirit that generates that to us. But let me just say to you, he's not going to generate that in my life or your life if you don't cooperate with him. He's not going to make you a slave so that you just automatically stop doing some of the things you can't do it. I don't know. Well, I, I, I can give you an illustration. I used to smoke. Smoked for 10 years. Started when I was 12 and quit when I was 22, 23. And uh, when I quit, I didn't, I really did not, I wasn't really not pleased with, I enjoyed smoking. It was something I enjoyed. But Elaine, who was the girl that I was, I became, my later became my wife, said it was bad for my heart and stuff like that and stuff. And I didn't, at that time, I didn't know, didn't know the Lord. But she said she was going to pray that the Lord would help me. And so I just stopped, just like that. And uh, he enabled me to do that. And it, it wasn't like it didn't have any temptation. I did. But I determined, I remember I used to work as a, a mechanic there at Ground Power in Germany. And we had a big mechanic, a big uh, place that we worked on the equipment and stuff. I have a toolbox over here and stuff. And we used to, they, back then you could smoke when you're on the job. And uh, so, and I'd used to have my cigarette up there on the toolbox or something like that. But I remember when I decided to quit, I came in and I told everybody, I said, I'm going to quit smoking. They would blow smoke in my face. You want a cigarette? So I said, no. I did that because I knew that my pride would make them make me hold out more than if I just did it. And so I said, no, I'm not going to do it. And sure enough, but the Holy Spirit gave me strength. And I, she, and I knew that later on. I found that later on that Elaine had been praying for me. And he will do that. He will help us. He will give us self-control. And he will bring things to mind and remind us of, of things that we need to stop or need to do or need to incorporate in our life to help generate this self-control. What does the Bible say? Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. You cut back on some things and give yourself over to other things to develop a, a heart or an attitude uh, for the Lord and for Christ. And so... Self-control is a product of the Holy Spirit, and self-control is um, is lacking in the lives of, of those who are outside the Lord. I mean, I don't mean to say that people don't have self-control, but this is what Paul says to Timothy. Paul says, he's talking about those false teachers. Paul says to Timothy, he says, realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money. Boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving. 
irreconcilable, malicious gossips without self-control. Not able to control themselves. So this is this is this is important. Uh, it, it reminds us. He goes on to this, by the way, in the last days they'll be brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they had denied its very power. How do you treat people like this? <coughs> Paul tells Timothy, avoid such people as this. Get away from them. Don't spend time with them. And then one more. That's in Second Peter, and it will be done. <coughs> Peter includes self-control as, as a major part of the curriculum <coughs> for our growth. Listen to what he says here. This is Second Peter 1. Five through seven. He says, Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence to your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and your brotherly kindness, love. <coughs> There's that list. Moral excellence. Moral lessons add knowledge, so that you know the word. To your knowledge, add self-control. Let the word produce that in your life. And in your self-control, perseverance, sticking to it, <coughs> because it's easy to quit. I can speak to that testimony. It's easy to quit and to give up. And in your perseverance, godliness, developing that focus on the Lord. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness, loving each other and caring for each other. And in your brotherly kindness, love. Love for God and love for you, fellow man. Well, we'll get the rest of these uh, <coughs> later on. I'm sorry about my coffee. I don't have the virus, Bob. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your mercy and your grace and your goodness to us. Thank you for loving us and giving us this, this word to us about some of the things that we should work on in our lives. Help us to do that. And as I started out talking about loving you, I pray that you'll help us to love you, help us to love you more and more, and love ourselves less and less. We get in the way of that. I get in the way of that all the time, all the time. And so I pray that you'll help us to be people that love you, to be like the church, not to be like the church in, in, in the Ephesus and Revelation that lost its first love, but help us to develop that. You told that church had lost its first love to remember from where they'd fallen, repent, and then go back to those original relationships and original activities, that original love affair, and, and to just follow that. Help us to do that. Help us to love you and love you more and more because that is the very lifeblood of our relationship. If we don't have that, we're going to die on the vine. So help us not to do that, I pray. In Jesus' name, with thanksgiving. Amen.